Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning service of Sunday the 10th of May 2015, entitled Facing Your Past Part 3, and the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 to 32. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Again, we're in Genesis chapter 32 today. We are continuing in our study of the Genesis account. And of course, as I said in the last couple of weeks, that we've uh, kind of moved a little bit out of out of turn here, and we'll go back. But uh, we've been looking at Genesis chapter 32, and of course, uh, um, this all really is under uh, the assurance of God's promises that's laid for us in the book of Genesis. And of course, it's it's because of the assurance of God's promise that we are able to do that which we've been looking at, which is very essential uh, in the Christian's life, and that is to face your past. Let's take a reading from Genesis chapter 32 as I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word beginning there in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 1. And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau, thy servant Jacob, saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants, and, men and women servants, and I have sent to Tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks and herds and the camels, into two bands. And said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidst unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. With my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. Thou saidst, I will surely do thee good. And make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And he lodged there that same night, and took of that which came to his hand, a present for Esau his brother, two hundred she-goats and twenty he-goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milch camels and their colts, forty kine and ten bulls, Twenty she asses and ten foals, and he delivered them into the hand of his servants, 
every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, Pass over before me, and put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou? And whither goest thou? And whose are these before thee? Thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a servant sent unto my lord Esau, and behold, also he is behind us. So commanded he the second and the third, and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall ye speak unto Esau when ye find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward I will see his face, for adventure he will accept of me. So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford to Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob called the name of the place Penal, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over, Penuel the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Father, thank you again for this time that we have of looking into your word this morning. And Father, we only have this privilege because that you have preserved your word down through the centuries for us, and we have it before us today. And Lord, because of your spirit that lives and dwells within us, and that through him alone can we have understanding. Through him alone can these words speak to our hearts rather than just to our ears, possibly our minds. Lord, we pray. Lord, in this congregation of people today, for those that are Lord, sitting under the preaching of this message, you know every heart. You know every need. You know exactly what is needed right now at this moment in time in each of our lives. So we pray, Lord. Speak to us. Help us, Lord, as we listen. Help us, Lord, that distractions would be put away. Help us to focus our minds and hearts upon that which you have for us. Lord, may we be responsive to the words you speak. 
In Christ's precious name we pray, amen and amen. The assurance of God's promises. God had made Jacob a flat-out promise that really could not be misunderstood. Jacob reminds him of that promise here a couple of times in the passage that we have, have just read. As he began praying to God, he reminded him there in verse 9, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, to whom he had also made promises, the Lord which saidst unto me, I'm praying to the God that said this to me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee, God. I'm praying to the same God that made me a promise that if I would return to my people after 20 years, remember, after 20 years since he had wronged his brother and stole that birthright from Esau and he had left. And of course, Esau had promised vengeance. 20 years later, he had this promise that he was standing upon. He reminds him again that it was this same God that promised him that his seed would be plentiful, that that seed would be seen in literally unnumbered amounts as he brought his family before him. But as he gathers here and he's praying this prayer to God, he's trying to say, well, Lord, I need your help. You see, we've looked at this. Fear is something that's very real with all of us for all kinds of reasons, all kinds of things. But one of the things that most people face at some time or another is a fear of their past, of something that they've done in the past, of something that they've not done in their past, of the consequences of actions that have taken place before. Jacob is at that point in his life. He is having to face his past in order to be able to move on. Remember that we said the first thing he had to do in facing his past was to face his fear. Face the fear. That's where he began there. This is where he recognized his position. Here he was. He was in a position now in his life that if he returned, Laban was going to have his vengeance on him. If he went forward, Esau was waiting to take his on him. So if I, you know, well, what can I do? Where can I go? He was at a point to where he had to face his fears. And the first thing that we read there, and Jacob went on his way. Jacob had to face his past from 20 years before. He realized where he was. He couldn't put this thing off. He had to face what was there. The first thing he had to do was recognize his own position but you see, he not only had to recognize his own position of facing that fear, he had to realize the providence, the providence of God. And Jacob went on his way, the verse that's on the screen before you, and the angels of God met him. You see, he had to realize and recognize where he was, but as he stepped out to do what God had told him to do, God had made a promise to him that if he would return, the things would go well with him. 
So when Jacob steps out to do that, the first thing that happens, the angel of the Lord was with him. He knew that God was there. And then we saw there in verse 2, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. Literally, this is God's camp. This is where God's at. He called the name of that place Mahanium. We find that uh, it was not only, it was a double camp. <laughs> where he was at, where his camp was, was God's camp. God was right there with him. He realized the providence of God. We saw thirdly in facing those fears that in the next verses that he had to respond with piety. What was his attitude? Goodness, humility. We won't go back and look at all those things, but we find that in every instance that he refers to his brother, he is referring to his brother as Lord and to himself as servant. Right through the whole chapter, Lord Esau. And everyone that he sent with a message, they were to refer to him as Lord Esau and him as his servant, Jacob. He laid it all out on the table. He sent his messengers there to meet Esau. And of course, they came back to him and they said, okay, we've met Esau. Esau, we told him what you said. Guess what? He's coming. And he's bringing 400 of his men with him. <laughs> we find that not only did uh, Jacob have to face those fears, but now he had to find the strength. Why? Why is Esau sending all of these men? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know if Esau was bringing 400 men with him because he feared that Jacob was maybe setting a trap for him. We do know this. We knew that Jacob was afraid because of what he thought that Esau might be doing in coming to destroy them. So he, he splits his, his, his band into two. He splits them up so that if, that, if, that if Esau gets one group, then maybe the other one will be able to survive. He said, this isn't going the way. God, you promised me that if I would return things would go well with me. Well, you know, I, I recognized where I was at. I realized what I had to do. I stepped out, and, 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 and God was right there with him, and he acknowledged that. I have responded to my brother with the attitude and the way that I ought to, with, with kindness and with, and with goodness, and yet it looks to me like he's just going to wipe me out and everybody that's here with me, this isn't working good. So the second thing we saw is he had to find the strength. He faced his fears, but when he faced them, it didn't appear that things were going as easy as he had hoped, so he has to find the strength. How do you find the strength? We looked at verses 9 to 12. He had to, first of all, acknowledge his own helplessness. And we, we looked through his prayer there. We looked as he began to not only acknowledge his own helplessness, but to ask for help from the one that had made that promise to him. Okay, God, you promised me this, but Lord, this isn't working out like you said that it was going to. You know, I, I really can't handle this. I need your help. And we looked at a number of things through that 
prayer. And I want to direct your attention today. Now, he has faced those fears, and as things were not going as he fully expected, relying upon that promise of God, he found the strength by admitting his own helplessness and asking help from the only one that could give him that help. He couldn't do this in his own wisdom, in his own strength. He had to have God. But in the next verses, we find the third thing that he had to do in facing his past. He had faced the fears. He had found the strength upon his knees. But now thirdly, he had to force the action. You see, upon finding the strength that he needed, upon finishing that prayer that he prayed, he immediately acts with force. He does something about it. Even though his brother doesn't seem to be accepting his goodwill, he doesn't throw up his hands, he doesn't turn and run the other way, he doesn't sit down and do nothing, he takes the initiative. He forces the action that we see that first of all, we see him react with honor through restitution. It's awful easy. It's awful easy in a situation like this to either be so afraid that we just sit down and freeze up and don't do anything and say, this isn't working. I've tried to do what God says, but it's just not working. It's not happening. But notice... As he gets up off his knees, he says, no, God has promised me. I need to do something here. Now, you'll find that as you begin to study this passage of Scripture that there are some commentators that actually believe that it was at this point in verse 13 that Jacob turned back to his own fleshly strength, that he began to trust in his own devices again. Is it really? Is that what we see? Verse 13, and he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother. There were some think, well, he prayed, but then he just turned back to his flesh that he was going to try to buy his way out of this. I challenge that. I don't, I don't really see that as what's happening here. I don't think that's necessarily what it means at all. What about a changed man that's wanting to make restitution for a sin in his past that he's had to face up to? We're not talking about paying penance. We're talking about making restitution. You see, what Jacob is doing here is certainly something that is taught throughout Scripture. We find that we're talking about doing what's honorable, offering restitution to someone that's been wronged. Jacob had sinned against his brother Esau. He had stolen from him. And here, immediately after getting up off his knees, immediately after communing with God, he proceeds by acting with what I see as honor towards the one that he sinned against, the one that he's wanting to make 
restitution for his wrongs. Is that biblical? Well, turn to the very next book of the Bible, which is the book of Exodus. Of course, remember at this time, the law hasn't been given yet. Many of the things that we're reading in Genesis are the very basis of things that God will, will put into law later. In Exodus chapter 22, notice beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be of ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man shall cause a field or vineyard to be eaten and shall put in his beast and shall feed in another man's field of the best of his own field and of the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution. If fire break out and catch in thorns so that the stacks of corn or the standing corn or the field be consumed therewith, he that kindled the fire shall utterly make restitution. Now, we don't, for the sake of time this morning, you keep reading right on down, at least down through uh, verse, verse 17 there, and you'll find that all of this is about if he does this wrong, then he is to do this in restitution. That wasn't to do away with the sin. We find that if you get right down towards the end, that you'll find that the sacrifice still had to be made for the sin, but the one that he was wrong. He was to be restored. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the next book. Leviticus chapter 6. Notice just a few verses here. You find that the Bible says, beginning in verse 1, he says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor, or have found that which was lost, and lieth concerning it, and sweareth falsely in any of these that a man doeth sinning therein, that it shall be, because he hath sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him, to him that appertaineth in the day of his trespass offering. An offering was still going to have to be made. What we find here is that not only in the physical theft of things being taken, but in lies, in deception, in the things that had been spoken, in the way that, that people were treated, the Bible said he was to make restitution. 
This restitution was not to get his sins forgiven with God. It was to do the honorable thing to the one that had been wronged. You say, preacher, won't God forgive us anyway? Well, God is very gracious. But God is telling you, see, this is not something that you got to keep this in mind. As with many things in the Bible, this is not something that you do in order to get right with God. This is something that you do because you are right with God. It is the natural response that you want to make restitution to somebody that you have wronged. Turn with me in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke. Certainly. A very familiar story, one that you probably first heard when you were in Sunday school, if you were privileged to go. In Luke chapter 19, I want you to notice what takes place here. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was. Could not for the sake of the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all murmured, saying <laughs> that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, <laughs> for as much as he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, just in the previous chapter, in chapter 18, Luke had recorded uh, a different story. He recorded the story there beginning in chapter 18 and verse 18 of one that was called a rich young ruler. He had a totally different reaction towards his riches. <laughs> you see, the thing was is that he had done all these things and he goes through and he says there in verse 18, and a certain ruler asked him saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. 
They that heard it said, who then can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. You see, we've got these two accounts, one right after the other in Scripture. And of course, the truth is, is that both of them had a totally different attitude towards their riches that they had. These examples are not a matter of anybody paying for their past sins. They're examples of the heart of one a changed person and one an unchanged person. And one, his wealth meant more to him than his relationship with Jesus Christ. And the other one, his first response, nothing mattered except Jesus was worth all of it. To one, hardly can a man be saved. To the other, today has salvation come into this house. One was changed and one was unchanged. You see, in both the Old and New Testaments, there are at least something close to 50 verses that deal with restitution in some form or another. God graciously forgives you of all of your sin. But what we're talking about here is in facing your past is that you've got to face those fears. and You've got to find the strength, but you need to force the action. And you need to do that which is honorable in restitution. You see, as is always the case in Scripture, <laughs> the restitution that Jacob offers here is extremely willing. Why is that? Is that because God is telling him, the boy, you got to give this much? No. It's because of that willing heart. <laughs> don't, don't we find that that's the thing amazingly throughout Scripture? Whether we're giving to God, whether we're giving to someone in need, whether we're giving to make restitution, it's that willing heart. When God has us, then amazingly he has everything that we have. But we find that Jacob is being very, very generous here in offering restitution. And I think that should serve as a reminder to us that nowhere in Scripture do we find that God ever has a stingy heart. Never does God give begrudgingly. And the Bible tells us that he loves a cheerful giver. It all comes back to that heart situation and the heart relationship. It is a sign of what's going on inside of us. The heart of a true Christian that is filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit will of necessity have a generous heart. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of the Christ that lives within us. We find that, of course, we're taught to be just as generous with our forgiveness. If we're the one that has been wrong, we've talked about this, that it is always us, the Christian, that's to force the action. If somebody has wronged us, we go to them. If we have wronged someone else, we go to them. It is our responsibility in facing our past. When we have faced the fear, when we have found the strength that we need to do what is right, then we must do it. We must force that action. We must react with honor through restitution 
You don't have to restore anything to anybody in order for God to love you and forgive you. But when you truly get that forgiveness and God moves into your heart, we see it is a natural response that if we have wronged someone, we want to make it right to them. It is the response of being right with God. It's what we will want to do. One final thought. Not only will we react with honor through a restitution, we will rest on hope for our restoration. <laughs> we will rest on hope for our restoration. Notice what the Bible says. Continuing on in our, in our reading, I need to turn back to it in my Bible here, still in Genesis chapter 32. Notice what he says in verse 22. He rose up that night, took his two wives and his two women servants and his 11 sons, passed over the four Jacob, and he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day, and we continue to read on down. You see, at this point, Jacob still has no idea how this is going to turn out. Not in reality. All he has still is the promise of God. God promised, if you go back, it will go well with you. He still doesn't see that in what's going on around him. He's acting out of his faith on the promise that God has made to him. We know from his prayer that he knows his only hope is in trusting God to do what God alone can do. He's not seeing it. Now he's waiting for the outcome. Undoubtedly, there's still some measure of fear here. Why? Because we see him sending his family away, even those that were with him, while he awaits on his own. But we see his faith. He can only hope that God will bring about the desired outcome because of what God has promised him. His hope is in the assurance of God's promise to him. As you and I, isn't that as, as we look back to Calvary and as we look back to the finished work of Jesus Christ there and as we look forward to his return for us in glory, we have all the more reason to hope. We have a greater reason for hope even than what Jacob had in his day. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 26 says, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. <laughs> Our hope. Our faith is in him as we're waiting. If you look into Hebrews chapter 6, notice what he says there in verse 18 and 19, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible 
for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Yes, we find here in the Genesis account the assurance of God's promises, the reality of that playing out before us, but I'm saying you and I today, we have the assurance of God's promises in our life. We have his word upon it. And I know sometimes, I know sometimes you just don't have the strength. Maybe there's some things that you fear that you just need to face. But you're not going to do this in your own strength. You've got to find the strength just as Jacob did. <laughs> Acknowledge your helplessness and look to God. <laughs> look to God. Allow him to do that which you cannot do for yourself. Trust in his promises. You can count on it. God cannot lie. If God could tell one lie, if he could break one promise, then forget it. <laughs> None of us have any hope. But there is no other hope. Our hope is either in Jesus Christ or is there is no hope at all. And either we believe him, we believe all that what he says, or we have nothing, nothing at all. Do we believe that? You see, with these kind of promises, we don't have to be afraid of facing anything in our past. Whatever that we've done wrong, whoever that we've wronged, we've got God's promises. But you've got to begin by confessing. If you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all. You can't hide it. You can't sweep it under the carpet. Jacob had to hope that Esau would be satisfied with what he was offering him. But that hope was based upon the promise of God. We know that God was satisfied with Jesus Christ's finished work at Calvary. We know that he was completely satisfied. We know that we don't deserve to be restored from any fallen state, but we can be confident that we can be. We can be confident that we are, all because of Jesus and what he did and what he promised. You see, I shared this verse with you, and I want to share it with you again this morning in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer, just as Jacob did, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, the only way, and we're all guilty of it sometimes, the only way you can be anxious, the only way you can worry about it is not to take God's word for it. He said, don't be anxious over things. Pray about it. Give thanks in everything. Let your request be made known unto God. 
the peace of God, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. How can you have peace in that situation? No, it doesn't make any sense. But it's not the peace of man. It's the peace of God that will pass all understanding. Look back in the previous chapter. Notice those familiar verses in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when Paul said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting those things. In order to forget those things which are behind, you first got to face your past and you got to deal with it. You got to put it under the blood. Then you can put it back there and it doesn't matter what Satan throws up. Put it behind you. Press towards the mark of the high calling. The only way you can put it behind you is to put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't do it by pretending it's not there. You can't do it by sweeping it under the carpet. We find that one of the great preachers of bygone years, and I give you this illustration in closing this morning, Dr. Harry Ironside told the story. And he said that there is nothing that so takes the joy out of life like unconfessed sin on the consciousness. He told the story of the late preacher, Dr. Effie March, that told the story of once when he was preaching on this very subject and at the close of the service, there was a young man of the church that came up to him, and it was obvious that he was very, very troubled. And he said, Pastor, you've put me in a bad fix. <laughs> he says, I've wronged somebody, and I'm ashamed to confess it, and I don't see how I can put it right. You see, he said, I'm a boat builder. The man that I work for, he, he, he's a lost man. He's an unsaved man. He's an unbeliever. And I've talked to him so many times about the Lord Jesus Christ. I've urged him to respond to the gospel message. But he just scoffs at it. He just ridicules it and makes fun of it. Now, I've been guilty of something that if I acknowledge that to him, it's going to totally ruin my testimony. He's going to say, uh-huh, you're just like all the rest of them out there, aren't you? <laughs> he went on to say that some time ago he'd started to build a boat for himself, and I won't go into all the details, but his back's up. But, but basically in the boat building, you use these copper nails so that they don't rust. And so he was just taking handfuls of copper nails because they were so expensive and his boss would never miss them. And he was carrying them home and he was using them in his own boat that he was building in his backyard. And he went on with all the ways that he tried to rationalize that to him. Well, he worked overtime sometimes that he didn't get paid for. He didn't really get paid enough for this. And all those things going through his mind that, yeah, it was okay to 
take that handful of copper nails and use them for himself. He said, I can't go to my boss. <laughs> I can't tell him what I've done. I can't even offer to, to pay for them because if I do, he's going to think I'm just a hypocrite. And yet, he said, those copper nails just kept digging into his conscience day after day after day. For weeks, he struggled with it. Then one night, he came to his pastor, and he said, Pastor, he said, I've settled it. <laughs> he said, what happened? He said, well, he said, I always did think that, this is what his boss was saying to him, I always did think that you were just a hypocrite. <laughs> but he said, you know what? <laughs> he said, there must be something to this Christianity thing because <laughs> Any religion that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he'd been stealing copper nails and offer to settle them, he said, there must be something to it because I can't imagine what on earth could ever make a man do that. And, of course, he went on to tell the stories of how that his great fear had been that he was going to destroy his testimony by doing what was right when in actual fact, it was through doing what was right, as embarrassing as it was, and especially it ought to be for a Christian. <laughs> for a Christian to have to admit that he's done something wrong, that he said something wrong, that he took something that wasn't right. But the truth is, is that it's only right that we do the honorable thing for those. And I could give you many stories, and I could tell you also that Dr. Harry Ironside told the story of how <laughs> the copper nails, the copper nails and what that man did with his boss with those copper nails actually not only had such a phenomenal effect upon his relationship and witness to his boss, but down through the years, Dr. Ironside said, I've used that illustration with countless people. And he said, the number of people that have had to get some copper nails out of their life has been astounding. You see, it's just like when we pick up the Word of God and we read about Jacob and we see what Jacob did. And he did it based upon the promise of God that he had. And I want to encourage you this morning, simply you need to face your past because we've got the assurance of God's promises. Don't let those things beat you up. Take the assurance of God's promises. If it's something that's happened before, face those fears. Find the strength and force the action that's needed to get it sorted. Put that thing behind you and press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus today. There might be some copper nails in your life. There might need some things that you need to confess and you need to make right, not in order to get right with God, but because you've gotten right with God. It's what you naturally want to do. Don't let that thing beat you up and hound you and take away that peace that passes all understanding. And here today, you might be struggling with something in your life 
I want you to realize that what we're looking here is how this man's life was changed because of the assurance of God's promise. These promises that I've shared with you today, they are your promises. You either believe God or you don't. Don't let Satan beat you down. Don't worry about trying to handle it yourself. Don't worry about the answers in flesh. Don't look for the peace of man. Give it to God. Trust God with it. Know that he's there for you. Just like with Jacob, man, as soon as he stepped out, the angel of the Lord was right there. He was right there with him. And he's there with you. He's promised never to leave you, never to forsake you. He's promised that he's with you every step of the way. So whatever it is today. 